Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. Turn to their seat. If you haven't uh, closed your Bible, then you're right there at 1 Samuel 14. And we're going to pick up in verse 24 and read through the end of the chapter. If you have, then open it back up and, and join me back at 1 Samuel 14. We're going to pick up at verse 24 and read through verse 52. Here's the rest of the story. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth. For the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of his staff and that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found? For now, the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said... You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thumi. And Jonathan and and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast a lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. 
As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the king of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malchishua, and the sons of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merab, and the name of the younger, Michael. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner was the father of Abner. Uh, the father of Abner was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any, any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Father, as we come once again to your word, I ask that you would add your blessing to this reading of your word and that by your spirit you would strengthen me to proclaim clearly your word that we all together might be comforted with the security that's found in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, as we've been going through the book of 1 Samuel, I've said a couple of times there's kind of these these two great and related storylines in the Bible. The, if, if somebody says, what is the Bible about? The answer that I think you should give is, the Bible is the story of God establishing his kingdom according to his Christ through his covenant promises. Went blank on, on my own little line there. Establishing his kingdom through his Christ according to his covenant promises. That's kind of the overarching story of the Bible. But there's this, this related storyline that runs through it also, which, which is the story of, of mankind, of humans, of you and I, trying to find hope, security, and identity. And, and, and in the Bible and in our lives, we look everywhere for it. And the irony is that if we would look to God, who is establishing his kingdom through his Christ, according to his covenant promises, we would find precisely what it is that we're looking for. Hope, security, and identity. Well, in the story today, one of the things that I love about the book of 1 Samuel is we see those two storylines kind of come together and weave in and out of each other just all through the book in, in really fun, beautiful, artistic, fantastic ways. And... and in this chapter, 1 Samuel 14, we particularly see this idea of security come to fruition and, and kind of be, be fronted and, and put center stage in the story. And, and this is a really big idea, this, this idea of security, isn't it? If, if you can convince someone that you can provide them some kind of security, I mean, they'll eat out of the palm of your hand. We'll eat out of the palm of your hand. Because we, we long for things to feel secure in this life. Whether that's relationally or financially or with our job or, or whatever it might be. We long, we want, if, if you can give us security, we're in. We are in. Because without that security, it just everything feels so undone. Everything feels so scary. Because we don't know at all what, what's coming. I was telling some, some guys before church, I heard a story this week on the radio of a, um, a geologist that, that studies earthquakes specifically, and, and, and he was talking about 
the, the particular trauma that earthquakes cause in comparison to any other natural disaster. And he said the reason for it is, his argument was, so, so he was entering, he was like a geologist, psychologist, I guess. He, he was entering into that world. But he said the reason for it is every other natural disaster, tornadoes, floods, whatever. We, we have at this point in human history, some level of prediction available to us. There's early warning systems for tsunamis. You see hurricanes coming from, from miles and days away. You know a tornado's coming, sirens go off, even volcanoes. There, there's things that are measurable that let us know, like, hey, that's about to go. But he said earthquakes, we have no prediction whatsoever. And all of a sudden, you're going about your life, and then everything that you thought was secure is now shaking, and your life is undone, and you have nothing to stand on. And he said, and it causes a particular trauma in people because it, it, it forces this reality that like, wait a minute, the earth itself, the ground itself, my house, the, 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 the roads, this, this solid piece of concrete that I can't damage with a sledgehammer, that I can drive this, this multi-thousand pound truck down, just like that can be obliterated. And so it causes this, these particular psychological issues in people because what happened? Security is gone. It's gone. I've never lived through an earthquake. I guess technically I have because there was a whole bunch of them here a few years ago, but I never felt one. I've never consciously lived through an earthquake, certainly not one of, of any like size or, or real effect on me. So, so I can't understand that. But, but, but the idea of losing security and freaking out I understand that perfectly. I understand that far better than I wish I did. And, and that's what's going on in this story. But you see, you see two characters respond to it in, in two different ways. Jonathan responds one way, and Saul responds in a completely different way. And, and it's interesting because the, the story is being told in, in the literary context of, of what we just read in 1 Samuel 13 where, where God has rejected Saul and said, I'm seeking a man after my own heart. I'm seeking the guy I want. I'm not judging by human appearance like you do. I'm looking for the guy that, that, that's according to my heart. And, and so if you're reading the story kind of from, from a literary standpoint, if, you, if you're reading it like you would read any other book, you're going, okay, who's that guy going to be? Who's the new king going to be? Well, you turn the page and you read 1 Samuel 14 and you've got this story where Jonathan goes and slays these Philistines and then Saul is a blundering mess and you're like, oh, it must be Jonathan. Spoiler alert, it's not. It's not Jonathan. It's David and then ultimately it's Jesus. But, but as we look at this story, we, we begin to see what God is setting up because he does give us a picture of what it is to find your security in him, according to his heart, and what it is to find it in yourself and what you can do. Walter Brueggemann kind of sums or summarizes this chapter. He says this, Saul is a burdened man whose faith is serious, even if misguided. Jonathan is a simpler person, more free in his faith. And that's exactly what we see. So remember that the, the first reading that we did, what happened? The, the, the Israelites, they're, they're kind of scattered all over the place. They're hiding still. Remember at the end of chapter 13, it had been whittled down to about 600. 
men to, to go and fight because they, they had all these, you know, 5,000 people, but then the Philistines showed up with like 36,000 people and they were like, okay, yeah, we're out. We're clearly going to lose. Only Jonathan and Saul have weapons. We're going home. But, but there were these 600 people that remained, but they're all hiding in caves and nobody knows what to do. And Jonathan gets this idea. Hey, armor bear, come on. Just two of them, him and the guy that carries his armor, let's go up and let's pick a fight with the whole Philistine army. Or at least this garrison, this, this outpost. And they were in an area that, that was kind of, the, the geography of it was particularly treacherous. There were, you know, these, these valleys and steep cliffs and everywhere. And, and so Jonathan comes up with this idea. And, and this is how he's processing it. Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be, and, and what he means there, he's not necessarily trying to be pejorative. He's just saying these people that aren't in the covenant. Let's go over to these non-covenant people that are threatening us as the covenant people of God. Let's go there. It may be that the Lord will work for us. And then here's his mentality. Here's how he's thinking about life as an Israel, life as, as one of the people of God. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Do you hear what he's doing? He's saying the salvation of the Lord, the salvation of Yahweh, the, the promises of Yahweh being kept don't depend on if two of us go up or if 30,000 of us. That's not what the promises depend on. If God is going to save us, if that's his plan, side note, it is. He's already made that really clear. If that's his plan, it doesn't matter that it's just you and me. It doesn't matter that we've been whittled down to 600. It doesn't matter that they've got 30,000 horsemen and 6,000 chariots or whatever the particular numbers were. You can look at the end of chapter 13. It doesn't matter that, that they control all the means of production and, and sharpening of iron so none of us have weapons. None of that matters, Jonathan says. What matters is what has the Lord said he's going to do? That's why he's so free in this thing. Because he's got, that's a kingdom mentality about life. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. The salvation of Yahweh, the salvation of God, Jonathan understands, doesn't depend on how many of us there are. Now, Israel should have gotten this. If you remember, I mean, God was real explicit with them. I, I love it because they needed that, we need that. And, and when he picked them, he told them, like, hey, listen, don't think, this is back in Deuteronomy, don't think that I chose you because there were so many of you. There weren't. Y'all were smaller than everybody. And then he also says, and don't think that I chose you because you were so righteous. You were hard-hearted. You were stiff-necked. You were stubborn. My choosing you depended on me, on my will, on my love, on my desire to see my promises and my blessing go out to all the nations through this one guy and his kids. That's my desire. Jonathan got it. It doesn't depend on us. It depends on the promises of God. And so he says, here's the plan. He doesn't know exactly what God's will is here. He knows that, that whatever God's will is, it's going to happen. It doesn't matter who's with him. And, and so he's like, well, we got we to test and discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. He didn't know Romans 12 yet, but that's what he's doing. So here's what we'll do. We'll walk out here. We'll let him see us. 
We'll holler at him. Hey, what's up, guys? Here we are. And one of two things is going to happen. They're either going to say, stay there and we'll come to you, in which case we'll just stay there and wait. Or they're going to say, come on up, in which case we know that the Lord has given them into our hands. And he's like, armor bear, it's that simple. If they say, stay here and wait, cool, we'll do that. If they say, come up, we're going to go up there and smoke them because it's God's will. And he just trusts God. He's like, we're going to go push on this door. If it opens, we're walking through it. If it doesn't open, no big deal. We'll stay here and wait. So they go out, hey, here we are. And, and the, the Philistines say, come up and, and we will show you a thing. And, and I love the translation of that because it's like they don't, it, it, it reads like they don't know what to say. And they're like, oh, we'll show you a thing. You know, like, a zoob, I don't know, like. And so Jonathan is like, all right, armor bearer, let's go. Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Notice he doesn't say into my hand or our hand. He's given them into the hand of Israel. We're going to win. Israel is going to be saved, even if it's by a few. So they climb these cliffs, right? And, and, and when I read this and... Like, I mean, this is like Prince's Bride, like where he climbs the huge cliff to fight. Like, that's what's going on here. Except for there's an army up there instead of just one swordsman, right? So Jonathan and his armor bearer climb the cliff, and then immediately this garrison inexplicably is just destroyed. The earthquakes, everybody freaks out, and there's panic in the Philistine camp. In one blow, Jonathan just lays out more than you could lay out in one blow. Like, like we shouldn't read this and be like, whoa, Jonathan did the whole thing like, oh, I'm fighting with my left hand. Joke's on you. I'm right-handed. Now, you know, like, no. God worked. God worked salvation for his people. That's what happened. It really had nothing to do with Jonathan other than the fact that he was the dude that went with his armor bearer. That's kind of it. And Jonathan knew that. This was the salvation of God. Meanwhile, the, the, the story continues back in the valley where Saul and, and, and the other people are hiding. And there's about 600 of them. We know from, from previous reading, but, but also from this chapter, it reminds us of that. There's about 600 of them. And, and Saul's like, oh, we got to do something. We got to go fight. Let's figure out who went. What's going on? You know, Saul's clueless. He doesn't have a, the first clue as to what's going on. He doesn't realize that his son, the heir of the throne, isn't around anymore. Like, like he's not just the, the greatest king, most attentive person that there was. So they figure out that Jonathan's gone. And he calls the priest and says, While Saul is talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistine increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. So here's what was going on. Saul called for the ark of God. He wanted Ahijah the priest to come because he wanted to seek the Lord's will. But then he sees what's going on and he's like, you know what? Never mind. We don't have time. Let's go. That's what's happening. So, so rather than being patient and seeking the will of God, 
Saul's just like, you know what? We don't have time for this. Withdraw your hand. Stop the process. We just need to get up there and fight. But they get up there and they find this is the scene. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow and there was very great confusion. Now, why does that matter? Because if you're reading this story straight through and you're connecting the dots, you're, you're asking the question at the end of chapter 13, wait a minute, how is a battle between 600 people in which two people are armed with, with, with the weapons of, of contemporary warfare, how is a battle between 600 in which two men are armed against 36,000 people that are armed to the hilt, how, does, how do they win that? And here's your answer. Here's, here's how God delivers by few. He works in such a way that he brings such mass confusion to the Philistines that uh, Jonathan and, and his armor bearer aren't even doing anything at this point. They're just running around killing each other because they don't know what's going on and they don't know who's who. That's how an unarmed army defeats the Philistines. God works. That's the security of the kingdom at work. That's the security of the kingdom. Now, th this idea is going to play out. We, we read earlier, he, he's saved by many or by few. Doesn't matter. He's going to save. If that's his will, that's what's happening. Doesn't matter if we're 600 unarmed men or 598 unarmed men and they're 36,000 machines. Doesn't matter. Why? Because what we'll hear from David in a few chapters is the Lord doesn't save with sword or with spear, because the battle is the Lord's. And what we'll hear from Jesus as he stands before Pilate, or before that, before his arrest, what we'll hear from Jesus as he looks at Peter, who pulls his sword out and is like, let's do this, is, that's enough. Put your sword away. Malchus, here's your ear back. That's not how this kingdom works. And what we hear from Jesus when he's standing before Pilate is, oh, you think that you're doing this? No, no, no. I'm letting this happen because my kingdom isn't of this world. My kingdom isn't coming by sword and spear. My kingdom is coming by me doing my Father's will. See, this is always how the kingdom works. It never comes by force. It never comes by the people of God taking up arms again. It never comes by us doing that. It always comes by God working. There's a scene in Joshua where this dude shows up. Nobody knows who he is. And he's like, are you for us or are you for our enemies? He's like, neither. I'm the commander of the army of the Lord of hosts. Something else is going on entirely. That's how the kingdom works. Why does this matter for us today in 2023? Because here's what we do. We, like Saul, look at life and it freaks us directly out. Everything feels insecure. Everything feels like an earthquake constantly. Just when we think we get our footing, just when we think we get our standing over here, it shakes and everything falls apart and we don't know what to do. So we move over here and we think we have, and then it shakes and everything falls apart. And that's how we live. And we run from one insecure situation to the next. And, 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 and here's what we do. We look for anyone that promises us any kind of security and we're like, okay, they're the ones that can bring it. They're the ones that can bring it. 
I have nothing against Dave Ramsey. Just throw that out there. I know some people do. I don't. I think he's got some smart stuff. Whatever. We used to be like hard. I, oh, I used to be like hardcore Dave Ramsey. Like, oh, we're gonna do this until because I thought like, oh, there's security, right? There's no debt, and we you know the money we've got, and all this, and and I thought like this will give us some security because we'll know we've got money until you go to the grocery store at the first of the month and you're not smart enough to not take the entire envelope and you lose it. And now guess where you are? In a wildly insecure place. Because now you have no money to buy groceries. We'll run after anything. That's a silly example. I get it. We'll run after anything. Anything that makes us feel like there's some security. We'll deliver phone books. I'm told that story. And here's how the world works. People come along and they're like, hey, do you see how insecure you are? Do you see how insecure the world is? Do you see how insecure the nation is? Do you see how insecure the state is? Vote for me. And I'll fix all of it. And we're like, I'm in. I'm in. That's not the kingdom. That's not the kingdom. That's a lie. It's a lie that we're being sold from every side, from every talking head. It's not the kingdom. That's why we need to see this story. Jonathan understood the security of the kingdom. Nothing will hinder God from saving by little or by few, by many or by few. Nothing. Let's go watch what he's going to do. Let's go live in light of the reality of the kingdom. Verse 24, the story changes and, and it, the, the focus moves to Saul. And we see really in, in many ways the polar opposite. We've already seen a glimpse of how Saul, he's like, okay, let's see God. Oh, wait, never mind. We don't have time. We got to get there right now. Go, 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 run, 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 run. Kill him. That's non-kingdom life when we don't have time to wait on God to answer. And we feel like we've got to provide the security right now. Right now. Saul's undone. And so he makes this vow that he puts on his people. And, and that's, he lays an oath on, so this wasn't the people being like, okay, we're going to take, this was Saul's saying, here's the oath you just took, everybody. Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening and I am avenged on my enemies. Notice the difference. Not he will deliver Israel or deliver the Philistines into Israel's hand, what Jonathan said, until I am avenged on my enemies. Paraphrase, until every one of you people know that I'm a good king. And then I'm the one you're supposed to be following. Until I'm avenged. 
That's not the kingdom. That's self-protection. That's self-promotion. That's fear oozing out of every pore in Saul's body. Trying to provide security for himself and his people. No one eats. No one eats until there's security. And you know that I'm the one that provided it. And if you do, you're dead. Jonathan doesn't hear this because he was away living in the kingdom. And so when he comes back and he's walking through this land, which is described as a land flowing with milk and honey, he's walking through the forest and apparently there's just honey dripping everywhere. And so he just takes a step and he's like, I'm hungry. Been a crazy day. Need to get my blood sugar up. So he eats some honey. His eyes are brightened. There's nothing magical here. He just got his blood sugar up. That's what happened. He felt better. Everybody freaks out. Didn't you hear about what your dad said? No, I didn't. What did he say? You're going to die if you eat today until we kill everyone. And Jonathan's response is like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. (laughs) He's slightly nicer about it than that. But but that's essentially, he's like, what in the world? God delivered us from the Philistines. There's 600 of them. There's 36,000 of them. God delivered us. And now my old man wants to make this like personal vendetta thing. And we don't even get to enjoy the salvation that God gave. And everybody's like, you know what? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And so they just go to town, plunder the Philistines. Eat. They don't even bother to keep the law at this point. They're just eating it raw, apparently, because the blood is still in it. I get it. Rare steak is better, but I mean. And then Saul freaks out. He's like, well, now we're breaking the rules. Now we're violating the law. We got to make sacrifices and fix everything. We got to get it right. He's Burdened, like Dr. Brueggemann said. It seems like he's trying to be faithful. He's trying. He's just going about it all wrong because there's no faith involved. It's like these are the rules. This is how we protect ourselves. We don't do this. And we we make sure we're avenged and, and we get security before we party. So he makes an altar. He's like, okay, get all the blood out. Do it right. Make some sacrifices. Because we got this angry God that we've got to appease. So they do that. And then he's like, all right, tonight. We're going to go and plunder him some more. And Ajah is like, hey, let's draw near to God. Let's see what he wants us to do here, Saul. He seems to be the one in control. Let's seek him out. So Saul's like, all right, fine. Shall I go down after the Philistine? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he didn't get an answer that day. 
So what does Saul do? Does he wait? So he can write the hymn, the psalm, I waited patiently on the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. No. He's like, you know what? Saddle up. We didn't get an answer. Let's go. Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how, let's figure this out. There's some sin in the camp. We're going to root it out. We're going to figure it out, and we're killing somebody. He's trying to root the sin out. He's trying to provide security. It's not that he's like, I mean, like I really think that that Dr. Bergman's right. He's burdened. He's a burdened man whose faith is serious. He's trying to take it seriously, but he's doing it by trying to carry the weight of the law. He's not trusting God for anything. He's like, if I do all the right stuff, and if I get all the sin out of the camp, and if I make this a pure place, and if I avenge upon vengeance, on vengeance, if I do it all, then we'll have security. But it's not going to work. It's not going to work. Because he's trying to do it all. He's trying to provide security that already exists. They're already secure. The Philistines, they took care of themselves. God worked it out so that they would. But Saul is so blinded by by him trying to provide his own security that he can't even see the victory that's right before him. He can't see it. And so he just keeps trying and keeps trying. Buckle down. Try harder. Where's the sin? Let's root it out. So they cast a lot. They, they use the urim and the thum. Nobody knows exactly. They, they were the things that were in the breastplate of the, of the ephod that the priest wore that, that helped people, the, the people of God discern the will of God. No one knows exactly how they work. So if you read a theory, you know that that's what it is. But, but somehow they would throw them like dice or something. And, and if you got A, good, B, bad, or vice versa, and that's how they figured it out. So he splits everybody up. He's like, everybody over there, Jonathan and I over here. Cool. Throw the dice. They're good. It's Jonathan and I. All right? Jonathan over there. Me over here. Throw the dice. Boom. Jonathan, it's you. You got to die. And notice, here's what living in the kingdom does to you. Notice how completely unconcerned about dying Jonathan is. I tasted a little honey with the tip of my staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. Why? Because his security isn't bound up in this life. His security is found in God, who will deliver by many or by few. He's not worried about this life. Yeah, I ate honey, Dad. Kill me. And then the people are like, nope. And they're basically like, we dare you to touch him. He worked for God today. And you're going to kill him? And notice the subtext. He worked for God today, Saul. You did a bunch of Godish stuff, but didn't work at all for God today. He did. You're not touching him. And then we start to see another piece of how it is that Saul's processing life. 
He's mainly concerned about what the people think about him. He's not actually a man of principle. I'm not saying he should have smoked Jonathan, but that's what a man of principle does in this situation. But a man living in fear of everybody around him and and getting his security and hope and identity from what other people think about him, and when all the other people are like, don't you dare, they're like, oh, well, here's a way out. And so he doesn't do it. See, that's not kingdom life. I'm not saying, just to be clear, I'm not saying kingdom life is killing Jonathan. I'm saying nothing about how Saul was approaching life lined up with the kingdom of God, lined up with life and the promises of God. It all lined up with him trying to provide hope and security and identity for himself by his doing it right, by him taking this burden of providing it for himself on himself and on everybody else around him and saying, let's do it. Jonathan, on the other hand, is like, nothing's going to stop him. Let's go. It's his will. There's two of us, no problem. 36,000 of them, no worries. Yeah, I did that, Dad. I'll die. Why? Because his life is wrapped up in this eternal kingdom that God has promised and not in this world. Now, as this sermon tarries on, and I do one more touch and go and don't land the plane just yet. What does this have to do with us now? Everything. Absolutely everything. Because we've got a king who, when he showed up, said this, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Change how you're thinking about life. Change how you're thinking about having to provide hope and security and identity for yourself. Change how you're you're thinking about sin and what it promises. Change how you're thinking and believe the good news. What's the good news? That the kingdom of God is at hand. How? Because Christ came and brought victory for his people. How? Through his life, death, and resurrection. So where does this leave us? It leaves us in this place of going, okay, Are we going to live with Jonathan in the boldness of the kingdom that looks at this life and and, and isn't unaffected by it? It hurts. Life hurts when hard stuff happens. It hurts when when our kids have to have surgery. It's scary. When when we face cancer, it's scary. Like, it hurts. That's real. Okay? But it's not ultimate. Why? Because the kingdom is eternal. And this life is not. Because Christ has established a kingdom that will not, cannot be shaken. And so here's what we typically do. We typically go, okay, But it looks scary. So let's not have a party. 
Let's not live that fullness, that abundant life that Jesus says he came to give us. Let's not do that yet. Let's get security first. We, we tend to look at life like Saul. Don't we? We see insecurity everywhere and we go, okay, we got to do something. We've got to do something. And maybe we sit down and we're like, okay, God, what do you want me to do? And like 0.2 seconds later, we've not heard anything from God. We've not got any direction from the Spirit. We probably haven't read the Bible. Or if we did, we just read it to say that we did. And then we're like, all right, withdraw your hand. Let's get to work. I got problems to solve today. And they can't wait until tomorrow. So let's get to work. And my plea for, for, for all of us, and, and look, never, and I don't think y'all do this, but there's some new people here, never hear me say anything like this and think that like, oh, I'm living this way. This is a plea for all of us, myself included, is this, that we would believe that the kingdom is actually at hand and live that way. And stop freaking out at every insecurity of this world. But look to our king on his throne and not care that we don't have a sword in our hands and not care that we're less than everybody else and not care if God takes his time answering us. But that we would wait patiently on him believing and living in the kingdom because Christ has established it forever. And nothing's taking us out of the king's hand. Nothing. Your king will not lose you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope of the gospel. We, we thank you that a king has come, that the kingdom has come with him. We can live this way, but man, do we find it hard to do. Because even between words of the sermon, insecure thoughts come. And we doubt whether all this is true. We need your help, Father, that we might understand the reality of the kingdom and live in its fullness. Even as we face life in this world that is profoundly chaotic and insecure. Help us. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of Scripture and theology.